Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Triangle, Episode 7. Dirty Money, Here's How to Clean It, a novel by Ed Adams. A matter of procedure. Truman and Green had no idea of the magnitude of the situation they were entering. They knew the killing of Deschamps was professional, had worked out that it was probably a mistaken identity, had seen a woman on camera leaving the crime scene, but had no further idea about who could have been involved. As procedure, they were following up on the invitations to the gallery show, and discovered that the invitation list for the previous day was short, and included mainly trade and some magazine and news journalists. The trail had led them to the Street magazine, and Jake's editor, Robert Davis. He was not particularly phased to have a couple of policemen invite themselves to his offices, as from time to time the magazine got itself caught up in the periphery of other investigations. The nature of their journalism meant they would stumble into mostly petty matters, and so there would be an occasional visit as part of routine procedures. This time the discussion was about the new showing by a subversive and controversial artist who had been exhibiting near Sloane Square. The show's start was delayed because of a murder, played down in most press coverage. Mr Davis began Truman. We have a few questions about one of your journalists. Far away, answered Davis, but remember, I may have to take advice on certain questions. Robert Davis was slightly intrigued by the turn of events and realised that Jake had been at the show. Truman explained the background and Davis responded. While the whole story was put on hold after the death and the delay to the opening, we keep our stories upbeat unless we are targeting a celebrity. But this situation of a murder in the gallery didn't fit with the monthly flow of the magazine. We can't beat the newspapers to the punch on topicality, and frankly, the delayed show pushes it back in the magazine. We may do a more general piece later, but at the moment there's a couple of other stories we pushed up as we bump this one down. As he said it, Davis realised that there were now three stories by Jake which hadn't been delivered over the last few weeks. Moreover, Jake was now sick from work. In a light-hearted way, Davis recounted to the police... Firstly, Jake's Liverpool fiasco with the substantial expenses but no story. Then the current art exhibition. And finally, the collapse of part of the Fast Boy story because of the accidental death of Darren Collins. Green and Truman looked at one another. This was a promising lead. Here was someone supposed to be at the art show, someone with a recent track record of absences and on the periphery of two recent deaths. Davis went on to point out that Jake may be erratic, but was a good writer and had been with the magazine for at least 18 months. These situations were close together, but frankly, in the business of street, errant journalists were not a particularly unusual occurrence. They walked back into the busy, bust-filled street by the magazine's offices. We're on to something, said Truman. Mr Jake Lambers is about to get a visit. Back at Biggs's flat, Biggsy was now intent on fiddling with computers, wires and the backup unit from Jake's place. Claire and Jake chatted idly, but waited expectantly for the little box to burst to life. Eureka, called Bigsy. We have contact. Houston, the lights are now flashing. And sure enough, Bigsy had connected the backup box to one of his computers and now had access to the folder structure to read the files. He browsed through the files. Well done, mate. You followed the backup routine, he said absently to Jake as he looked at what was on the disk. We seem to have a good backup of your laptop. He scrolled along until he found the digital recorder directory and there inside it was a large selection of files containing records from various interviews conducted by Jake, and among them was a recording from the date of Jake's meeting with Collins. 
Pixie clicked it. iTunes popped up on the computer, the software usually used to play music tracks, and almost immediately the sounds of the muffled meeting with the Arabs interspersed with louder sounds of Jake drinking coffee. We can improve the sound quality a bit, said Bigsy, but let's just listen to it through once. He fiddled around in his pocket while he said this and withdrew his keyring. I'm also making another copy, he announced, showing a small electric gizmo on his keyring with a plug on its end to connect into the side of the computer. He plugged a memory stick into the side of the computer and copied the still-playing file onto his storage device. The recording ran for about five minutes with the muffled conversation, which was about something about trade routes and seemed to be quite agitated by the end. There was then the distant conversation where Jacob met the group outside the room and then the click as the session finished, almost immediately running into a new session comprising Jake and Darren Collins sitting together in the place where the recorder was situated. What followed was the interview Jake had described. There was nothing particularly interesting beyond the points which Jake had accurately recounted to Big Sinclair, but both Big Sinclair picked up on the agitation in the tone of Collins' replies. It was as if Collins didn't want to be there doing the interview, but was still trying to give polite responses to the questions he was being asked. As Jake had said, there was also the section where he talked about the secure code and gave the number, which all three of them wrote down. It was Blue Flame, miles per hour, 7539. After 25 minutes or so, the interview concluded, and then the recording stopped abruptly. There was a moment of silence in the room. See, said Jake, I was pretty accurate with what I told you. The others nodded in agreement. We need to get a better version of the first section, said Bigsy. I'm sure I'll have something to help this. He fiddled around with the computer again for another ten minutes. OK, he said. I've added some sound mixing software to this PC. It's only a trial edition from a download, but we get to use it for 30 days. Claire and Jake looked at one another. They were hardly leading-edge counter-espionage agents if they were using free trial software to crack hidden messages. To their joint amazement, the program started up, and after a few screens of text imploring them to buy the full version, it eventually led them to a control panel. Drag and drop, said Big Z. By this time in full Geekville, he found the folder with Jake's recording and dropped the little file icon into the new program. Some wiggly lines appeared which looked like the sound wave of the recording. Bigsy pressed play, and the same bad recording started again, only now he could change the sound quality. To begin with, he was playing with the controls akin to the tone controls on Hi-Fi, but then he started clicking other buttons, and to the surprise of Jake and Claire, the sound started to get clearer, and the background hum and other interference sounds seemed to melt into the background. I'm using a multi-compressor to sweep for the best frequencies, mumbled Bigsy, and set a shelf for the low end to cut out that low rumble. Whatever it is, it's bloody genius, chuckled Jake, amused at Bigsy's intensity in this exercise. Bigsy saved the settings and rewound the recording to the start. Let's listen, he said. Langley The National Security Administration in Langley, Virginia, USA, is set inside a complex often referred to as Fort Meade. To locals, there is another nickname, the Puzzle Palace, because it is used as the most extensive electronic surveillance and counter-espionage environment on the planet. This means that Langley eavesdrops. It has giant computers able to monitor millions of phone calls and emails each day. Most items tracked are innocent. Langley has to be good at spotting the few that are not. At that moment, a particular chain of events was beginning to raise a few alerts in their systems. 
This was an activity in Saudi Arabia as several seriously wealthy Arabian businessmen were clustered together with a person who the NSA had been monitoring for some time. They had been particularly clever at triangulating the individual under surveillance. He was skilled at counter-espionage technique and often used multiple cellular phones in a way which made him difficult to track. His smart part was that he also kept a routine phone which he regularly used which could create a decoy usage print of normal behaviour. The not-so-smart part was that he used different phones but often first enabled them from either his home or his office. This gave a useful signal to the monitoring authorities who could then pick up the cell phone number and the handset serial number by noting its first activation from a known location. After that it was easy enough to switch on tracker software to record any use of the phone. So the person being tracked, JA slash RU slash 059, was easy to follow and the monitoring of his meeting with the Arabs in Riyadh had been a matter of identifying his cell phone and noting five other long-usage cell phones all in the same location. Langley had noted another 657 phones in the same location as the person they were monitoring. They had quickly reduced it to 47 phones with similar arrival and departure times. The monitoring picked up usage consistent with a meeting. The group all arrived within a few minutes of one another. They all left and split up at roughly the same time. The central mark had left around 35 minutes earlier and next been stationary at Riyadh's airport before the signal had deactivated. Since that time there was no signal anywhere. NSA removed several people from their remaining list as highly improbable, but finally identified a small group within the cell phones left that were high-profile individuals. NSA also cross-checked their findings with their Five Eyes allies. This included the UK's GCHQ, although the British did not have the same level of monitoring capability as the Americans. The theory was that their suspect had met around five senior Arabian businessmen in Riyadh. They had been in a high-profile location, spent an hour together, and then dispersed. Their suspect had travelled to Riyadh's airport, deactivated his phone, and was now no longer visible. The NSA were now tracking the routine phone of the suspect for its reactivation, but so far there had been no signal. The request for information from the Americans to GCHQ had created an alert which had routinely been passed to UK's National Crime Squad, who normally worked in areas related to organised crime. On this occasion, the alert was considered to be civil and consequently more relevant to the police forces than the counter-espionage units with whom GCHQ regularly operated. GCHQ passed the report to the National Crime Squad, who triaged the report incident to decide whether to take action. Frugality ruled and an economical low-key monitoring option was selected, partly as a consequence of the lowered terror threat level in the UK. Sound reasoning Fredrickson's plane from Riyadh was on time. The journey was about five and a half hours according to the schedule, but he knew that early morning landings at London's Heathrow could be delayed. In the event, his arrival was punctual, and because he had been seated at the front of the plane, he had taken full advantage of the available bed. He would also freshen up in the arrivals lounge allocated for the more privileged passengers of British Airways. His objective now was to get into central London and to meet the American, who had some interesting news. The American's name was Chuck Manners, which sounded part British and was a rather apt name for someone in his line of business. Chuck didn't seem to see the irony of his name, and it wasn't something to make a direct joke about. 
but Fredrickson normally thought of him as the American in any case. From Heathrow, he picked up a taxi from the line and asked for Edgware Road on the western outskirts of central London. Every taxi driver would know this location, and the ride was around 50 minutes. Sure enough, the taxi pulled up at an appropriate office block in an area which seemed to have a fair smattering of Arabic shops in the neighbourhood. He stepped out of the cab, walked a few steps to the office block, pressed a buzzer and was admitted to the lobby area and the elevators where the American had his office. A few miles away, in Biggs's flat, Biggs's technical attempts to adjust the sound from the recording were surprisingly successful. The first part of the recording comprised the majority of the conversation which had taken place in the next room, interspersed with some loud sounds of Jake stirring and sipping coffee. The dialogue started without much by way of introductions. This could be simply that the recording started a little way into the conversation. A softly spoken Arab with a definite edge to his accent, particularly on R, words with R in them, had been describing the current transfer arrangements of some funds. He explained the purpose of the arrangement with Collins to move funds efficiently and with the minimum of interest to other organisations. The recent development seemed to be that since they, he did not say who, had become interested, it was slowing down the process to an unacceptable degree. Bigsy Clare and Jake assumed they referred to the authorities in some form, whether police or some kind of regulatory organisation. The softly spoken Arab had continued explaining that the consortium that he represented was most displeased at recent delays and irregularities in handling of payments and that they were reviewing their options. A second and gruff-sounding Arab took over, saying that the agreement between Collins and the consortium was ended because of recent developments. He wanted to know from Collins whether the current funds in transit would be rapidly processed. Then the entire consortium may wish to seek a new business partner. The first Arab had continued saying that they needed to see an up-to-date list of the transactions still in progress and their anticipated completion times. Collins had blustered at this point. He had sounded uncomfortable throughout the entire conversation and now was trying to explain the current position. The funds still involved seemed high, but Collins did not seem to have a clear idea of when the payments would all be complete. There was a pause. The gruff Arab then continued stating, in a very firm voice, that because of that uncertainty, the consortium would be invoking a clause in their original agreement to take back control of the remaining transactions. The fees due to Collins would be revoked and Collins would need to sign over control of the remaining processes to another one of their business associates. There was a noise of clicking and sounds of paper rustling. Collins was saying over the top of this that he was sure that the situation could be fixed and that any action on the part of the consortium was premature. I disagree, said a new voice, well educated, and to an English ear it sounded rounded in a public school kind of way. It must have been the third Arabian-looking gentleman, because the American had a clear southern state draw when Jake had spoken to him later. The voice continued, We have followed the procedure in the original agreement. The basis of the agreement was clear when we started. You have given your word that you would handle this impeccably. We now have a difficult situation for the consortium and need your full cooperation. I strongly advise you to listen to my business associates and to follow their advice. There was a long silence. The first Arab, with a quiet voice, spoke again. It would be much easier for all of us if we simply follow the original agreement. 
you need to sign the document in the places indicated. We can take over from there and leave any finalisation details to our other colleague, Mr Manners. The American spoke for the first time since the recording had started. Mr Collins, I strongly urge you to take the advice of your business partners. I believe their legal advice is binding and they also have a solid point about the current status of our business transactions. Please do not make more things more difficult through senseless obstinacy. There was another pause. Collins asked if there was an opportunity for him to seek legal advice. He was told that the agreement was signed with full knowledge of what would happen in a situation of dispute. They reiterated that this situation was beyond contradiction. There were a few more pauses and then Collins could be heard rather unenthusiastically agreeing to the demands of the group. Some rustling and scraping sounds, presumably of the paperwork being signed, and then within a few moments the sound of chairs moving around. A good decision, said the originally softly spoken Arabic voice as the sounds turned to those of opening the office door and of people moving into the lobby area. Jake could then hear himself first making contact with the group and the clumsy exchange followed by the more strident exchange from the American asking to swap business cards. The next section transitioned into the arrival of Collins in Jake's meeting room and the clear transcript including the little sequence with the exchange of the number but nothing else particularly noteworthy to the listeners. There was a pause as Big Z, Jake and Claire looked at one another at the end of the recording. They were all caught in thought and in particular of the tense discussion between the Arabs and Collins which Jake was hearing for the first time. Jake spoke first. Well, that puts a lot more of what has been happening into perspective, he commented, and the others nodded. We still don't know exactly what the business is about, but it's clear that Collins has delayed some payments and the Arabs were not very happy. It sounds as if he has signed some rights over to the Arabs as part of this transaction. Claire commented next. It looks as if the Arabs were threatening him as well. We can't tell what the body language of the session was like, but the words certainly sounded menacing. And that is consistent with the look they all left with and with the way that Collins seemed shaken up when I was interviewing him, said Jake. And what about the American, asked Bigsy. He seemed to be there as some sort of heavy artillery if Collins got out of order, he suggested. OK, said Claire. What about the code that Collins gave you? Was it a passcode, an email login, a combination or what? They all stared at the code individually. OK, said Bigsy, but let's think about this first. If it is a password or a code... We don't want it to be traced back to here. We need to access it from somewhere that other people can't trace. Maybe we should try some internet searches first in any case. Good point, Echo Claire. We need to find a place with lots of people if we're going to try that. Once again, they decided that Claire and Bixie would make the journey, but before that, they decided to write out as many options for the code that they could invent to try out which would work. They all felt they were getting somewhat paranoid, but they didn't want to take any chances after what had happened to Lucien and Collins. Mm -hmm.